Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Truth, He Named Me Malala, Freeheld, Mistress America, and more. And on Wednesday, November 25th at 8 p.m., The Bookshelf presents an appearance by esteemed author Margaret Atwood at War Memorial Hall on the University of Guelph campus. The Bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario. Guelph is a fine city located an hour west of Toronto, right off of Highway 401. So if you're on the road, consider stopping by Guelph. It's a lovely city full of books and pizza and podcasts. For more information about the bookshelf's hours, listings, blogs, directions, and accessibility, please visit bookshelf.ca. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerottis, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Creative Control with Beach Comic. You're listening to episode 224 of Creative Control. My name is Vish Khan. I'm the host and producer of this show. And I know we've had a big influx of listeners recently. I'd like to thank all of you for checking out past episodes of the show. I've been getting your notes. I've been responding to them. It means a lot. I do appreciate it. This is the second of a two-part moderated conversation between Ian Mackay and Steve Albini. Ian Mackay is known for being in bands like Minor Threat, Embrace, Fugazi, and The Evens, and he co-founded the Washington, D.C.-based label Discord Records. Steve Albini has sung and played guitar in bands like Big Black and Shellac of North America, and he owns and operates the renowned recording facility Electrical Audio in Chicago, Illinois. Hey, if you want your records to sound really great, you too can make an album. 
or record some songs at Electrical Audio. Steve might be the person pressing the buttons. It might be someone else. They have lots of talented engineers and technicians there. Greg Norman could do it. He's good. He knows what he's doing. You can learn more about uh, their respective pursuits, Ian and and Steve's respective pursuits, at discord.com and electricalaudio.com. Now, if you haven't listened to part one of this conversation, you still can. It's available as a download or stream at vishkana.com, or you can search for Creative Control with Vishkana on iTunes and audioboom.com as well. But if you want to just forge ahead and listen to part two, I think you'll mostly be fine. There are a few allusions to people, places, and things covered in the first section, but as I say, I think I don't think you'll be all that lost. Go, go forth. Oh, actually, speaking of which, in the first part, Ian discussed the band Palehead, which was a short-lived and kind of happenstance collaboration between himself and Al Jurgensen of Ministry. And uh, Ian told the story about Jurgensen wanting to play Palehead songs live. And when Ian refused to play any shows, he heard that Jurgensen got a roadie to sing Palehead songs, which fooled some fans into thinking they saw Ian Mackay cameo with Ministry. Now, as it happens, friend of the show John Solomon of Comedy Minus One Records uh, located some live footage of Ministry doing a Palehead song with a fake Ian, and that clip is now posted up on the Creative Control of Vishkana Facebook page. And after John sent it to me, I sent it to Ian, and Ian told me he had never seen it before, and I I think it might have made his day. So check out that clip. Uh, The only other things I'll make note of here is, unlike the first part's discussion of Ian and Steve's uh, working relationship and the origin of their friendship and, and their connection to American punk rock in the 1980s and 90s, This section primarily tends to get into more big-picture ideas and universal topics, which I think both of them dig into from really unique angles. And, oh, actually, I did ask them about the Fugazi and Shellac shows that I saw in Chicago in 1998-2001. That was just a bit of personal interest stuff. That That was for me. I'm sorry. The rest, I think almost anyone can relate to, I hope. All right, that's it. Here we go, part two of a conversation between Ian Mackay and Steve Albini. the good fortune of attending the independent arts festivals that took place in Chicago in 1998 and 2001 with uh, Fugazi and Shellac and Blonde Redhead the first time and then the next time we were just talking about the X and the X played and it was mind-blowing and Steve I was just curious is that or was, was that a recurring blind. festival in Chicago no it was just that was a that was a sort of an umbrella name that we would use whenever Shellac and Fugazi would do a show together he- my wife Heather was principally involved in organizing a lot of those shows we did one of them ended up the the first one was the one at the roller rink 
And then after that, we um, typically do it at like the Congress, Congress Theater. Yeah, yeah, Congress Theater, or and the the Congress Theater had like a big lobby and an atrium, and so there was a lot of extra room, and so um, it was Heather's idea to like get more people involved than just the bands and turn it into kind of an event, and so there was ended up being sort of exhibition space or. People would set up tables and like have like the record labels would have their stuff or screen printers would have their stuff or kids with a fanzine would have their a little table, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. Heather's Heather was a total she's a brilliant visionary. And like when we do like she's one of my favorite people to work with. So when like she would just have these ideas and like well, we have this giant like f- you know, foyer like at this theater and we can just fill I said okay like you know I mean I I, I was always amazed the stuff she could pull off and there was it really was there was very, and there were big shows I mean it was like I don't know was, yeah. how big is that room two or three thousand I have no idea a couple thousand yeah yeah but it was you know they're they're big shows and um, I've always felt really they're just perfect perfect productions really well they're deeply and meaningful to me as a fan if that matters to you I remember corresponding with Heather for tickets from Canada uh, just trying and to one thing about go. her, another thing is at the end of the day, she'd always say, I don't want any money at all. And I'd be like, okay, you know, fuck that. You know, you got to take something because she would work so hard. But she's so just committed. She just thought she just wanted to make something good. And she did. And these beautiful. Yeah. I have these beautiful. I guess they're J. Ryan prints. The the posters. Yeah. yeah. I have them from both yeah. shows. Yeah. I look at them every day. Yeah. It's it, those were really um, I didn't realize there were three of them. I didn't know about the roller rink thing because the Congress Theater also. I understand it's basically a condemned building now or something. It's been through a change in ownership and I mean it was that that block was owned by somebody and then it was bought by somebody else and like the neighborhood was kind of not into that owner and that like there's a whole bunch of political stuff associated with that block. Hmm. And I I have stayed out of it. I don't have anything to do with it. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, those shows were remarkable. I just wondered how they came about. The first one, the roller rink, was it? It was us, you, and the and Spivs band with the makeup. Was it Ulysses or makeup? It was makeup. It was Ulysses, was it makeup? Okay. Yeah. And that and that room wasn't that. That was a kind I of a famous. It was a it, at the time it was called the Rainbow Roller Rink, but previously it had been. Um, the electric playground or electric something um, that was a sort of a psychedelic club, psychedelic era. And you could still look at the club. hall, the wreckage of the hall, right? You could see the wreckage of the hall. Like you, not, it was not the roller rink, but if you kind of go up, you could see. I, I'm remembering and it was like another. Previously, room. it had been a speakeasy, yeah. yeah. And so there right. still had all that architecture from when it was a speakeasy, it was all still there. Hmm. Yeah, Bernie the fan was a big part of that gig, too. He was involved with that. Yeah, Bernie, um, he was involved in a bunch of, like, setting up a bunch of yeah. shows back in the day. I don't think he's done anything. I think he got involved in boxing promoting. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, I don't even know why I think that. I'm, God knows. I haven't seen or heard from him in years. I have no idea. I don't remember the last time I heard from him. 20 years, 15 hmm. years? No idea. I want to ask you guys about your role. I mean, people often look to both of you for advice and opinions about all manners of things, I imagine. And I wonder what drew each of you to not only engage with independent culture, but then actually take on these leadership roles as well. Um, Ian, can you speak to that? I guess the first thing is I don't think about it as a leadership role. Yeah, I think that I that's kind of a that, weird phrasing. Yeah, I would never think like that. I would just, it's not the, I mean, I think that as a punk, I mean, I come out of punk rock, and part of that was sort of like just speaking your mind and being and 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 um, so from very you know from the very beginning, I always thought you're just supposed to talk about the you know how you see things and 
as a lyricist, certainly that was my that's my my intent. And I think over the years, when one is interviewed a lot, one develops like sort of a kind of a a power, a perceptive power or something. You just get this. You start to think about things in a, from an external way, and maybe that has something to do with. It. I don't know. I mean, I've been interviewed thousands of times, um, and I know Steve has certainly done many interviews. And there, I have to say, Steve's interviews are, you know, they, they're they're always great, I think. I always enjoy, you know, they're good interviews because he's fucking thinking about it and he's not scared to speak, like, say what's on his mind, you know, like that's And I think that's always very refreshing. Um, I agree. So I think that you're confusing um, confidence with leadership. And I think that to be confident in, in your own words, people may perceive that. Like if you're, if you're somebody and you just go, you start walking. People, you might say, well, that guy's leading or he or she's leading. Um, but really, that person is walking. And other people might feel like they're they're, they're behind them, but they're not necessarily. They're, just, they're showing that it can be walked. You, you see that? They can, they're showing that you can, that the path can be made. Right. That's all. Sure. And I think that, you know, from my point of view, a lot of the, you know, what I'm interested in is not people lining up behind me. What I'm interested in is people feeling like that they can, they also can carve their own paths. I'm shocked by um, how um, ineffective people feel uh, in a world that is so rife for change. You know, I find it shocking. So, um, so I think that when I am interviewed, if someone's going to ask me a question, I damn well intend to fucking answer it. And um, and I think that that kind of uh, leaning into it in the way I do probably gives you know that's just con- again it's just confidence. I don't mean. But I also, I hope you'll notice if you look at my interviews, I very rarely, like, I'm very careful about, I don't talk shit about people. You know, I don't, this is my nature. Guys don't want to get what, into wait, that. What's that about? <laughs> yeah. It's just my way. I just don't, I don't want to get into, like, having, I don't want to, I'm not interested in getting into some, like, tit for tat. I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm mostly, like, if, to me, I'm just, a, it's a construction work and that, you know, and I don't, I mean, I, there are plenty, I enjoy, like, as I said, like, I enjoy reading Steve's, like, recently, I forget, I just came across, um, I don't know, what were you, who were you wrangling with the other day? You, or not the other day, it was last month or two months ago, but it was pretty amazing. You critiqued something. It was something about the music union. It was, thing Mar- it was Mark Ribot. And yeah, it was yeah. an incredible exchange. And I thought that I really, really appreciated your thoughts on that. And, and, um, you know, and this is the kind of thing that, like, I'm not in the social media world, but every once in a while, shit will, something will happen and someone will send me and go, you have to read this. <laughs> And I live, those are the things I always think are the ones that are worth reading because someone actually plucked it out of the aquarium. Yeah, it's kind of curated. And it on, yeah. If they pulled it out of the aquarium and put it on my desk, I'm like, all right, like right on. Um, and that was a really interesting exchange. But from my point of view, like I stay away from like proper nouns for the most part, like unless I'm just telling a story about something. But I just try to stay out of giving people shit because I don't want – I'm just not interested in having to hear them like respond that way. I don't give a fuck about mm. – it seems pointless, but I also like, I try not to talk too much about. Like, if you look at my interview, I rarely do I talk about like say like, well, I don't think people should do this, or I don't think you know. I'll say what I do to some yeah. degree, but there's a lot of things people ask me about my personal life or my or things that, and I don't you know. People like want to ask me about my diet and shit like that, and I don't. I generally don't discuss that because I'm not. I'm not trying to um, give people a blueprint. I'm trying to give people a fucking pen. So they can make their mm. own. Steve, what about you? Well, I mean, it's it's odd that you would use 
terms like leader to speaking to people like Ian and I who basically don't recognize that those kind of hierarchies. Sure, sure. You know, um, I I think a better term would be like examples, like the way Ian has conducted himself and the way the people that, you know, like we were just talking about, we had been talking about John Loder and the other people that were inspirational to us. The the way people conduct themselves uh, gives you uh, an idea that things are possible, you know. And if I'm that for somebody else, that's fine. But I recognize that there are those people for me. And in a lot of cases, what I'm talking about is stuff that I've learned from the way other people have behaved that has informed the way I can behave, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't really feel like it's on me to square anybody else up, but I do think that there are, I'm not afraid to draw conclusions, and I'm also not afraid to point things out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I, I'm comfortable speaking as an authority. What I, what I can do is I can make observations or that I, I can, you know, uh, highlight something. But it, it, it's like I said, I mean, I don't think either Ian or I would recognize the notion of an authority in any of these matters. Like it's just it can be done in a way that you feel comfortable, things that can be done in a way that you're comfortable with or a way that you're uncomfortable with. And you can if you do them in a way that you're comfortable, then that, you know, provides an option for people who maybe didn't think that was an Mm -hmm. option. Mm hmm. And what about Ian's distinction of not talking shit about people or necessarily calling people out? <laughs> uh, well, there, are, my, I I try to keep that in a place where if if someone has taken it on himself to like present either an opinion or a position or an argument. And one of those and, – and there's something fundamentally wrong about that. I think not challenging that position or that argument is irresponsible mm-hmm. if, if, if you're in a position to do it, right? Um, on, the other, on the other hand, uh, it's also just gratifying to recognize stuff that you think is awful as awful – uh if only because it you know you're you're you don't feel like a sucker you don't feel like you're just buying into whatever crap anybody has thrown out there and you know I, one of the things that kind of was a pet peeve during the hardcore era was this thing that was sort of embodied by zines like maximum rock and roll and a lot of individual people which was to never speak ill of another punk you know, right, uh, and that to me seemed to sort of indicate that we that we weren't capable of critical thought, and that we weren't that uh, we weren't willing to acknowledge that acknowledge it when somebody blew it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I always felt that that was a critical aspect of the punk scene was that you couldn't get away with half-assing it. You know. At least in Chicago, that was very specific, very, very, very significant part of the scene here was people holding each other to account for being jagoffs about something or being too big for their britches or whatever. And 
uh, and I always and that sort of because I sort of came of age in the music scene here that informed my perspective on on how you deal with basically everything is like to not let people pull one over on you not and not buy anybody's bullshit just because they said it you know you hold you you hold people to a higher standard than that i think yeah you're i think you're talking a little bit about social diplomacy or something and i mean in your lifetimes in your public work you've each had an interesting relationship with the notion of political correctness and i'm curious how you relate to this concept these days like steve what do you think of that well i I have to admit that my it's been an evolution for me like the the term political correctness came about when the left the sort of radical left uh recognized that there was developing this very stilted speech where people were using gender neutral pronouns or using he she for everything people were avoiding you trying to be inclusive about every about every statement trying not to like assume any sort of roles or stereotypes and it really stifled conversation it made it really difficult to have people regular conversations and and as a point of critique within the left whenever anybody would use one of the prohibited pronouns or say something that was judgmental somebody else would kind of chide them and say you know that's not pc right right and that was but that was with an air of like awareness that those things were trivial and not that wasn't you know it was kind of it was kind of a lighthearted point of critique within the left that the left was getting too hidebound in its language right and the term political correctness has now been adopted as a weapon by the right and by the conservative elements of culture as a way to henpeck anyone who expects other people to behave decently toward each other toward toward the rest of the world mm-hmm. and so the term political correctness has now become uh, a, an arguing point for the conservative side of the spectrum as opposed and it, it, it was co-opted from the left so my and I would argue that it's not it's not a recent development Reagan was really the first to hammer down the idea that being politically correct was somehow, if you think about the English language, those two words, you know, politically correct, if you take it on a face value, it's correct. But somehow the, you know, Reagan revolution managed to invert that into something, it was was a derisive term and, you know, a pejorative. Uh, And also, like, you know, to care was selfish, you know, right. that kind of thing. You know, like to be concerned is, you know, like to be concerned was, you know, you're trying to destroy jobs or you know, whatever, whatever it was. Like, it was just like this new speak kind of like inversion right. of, of, of meaning. So and I think if that, you that, if you substitute yeah. the uh, a friend of mine posted this on Facebook and it's as stupid as it is to, for me to have to admit it, admit that but, um, that this actually makes perfect sense. If you substitute the phrase being decent toward other people for the term political correctness in every instance, then you start to see how ridiculous the arguments against political correctness as a as an ideology Absolutely, are. Absolutely, yeah. Like, when someone is offended by political correctness, what they mean is they, they don't want their biases and their presumptions to be criticized. They want to be able to get away with them and not have anybody call them on them. And 
it's I think it's healthy to be called on those biases and presumptions. And if anything, if nothing else, it gives you gives the person who's been called on them an opportunity to justify their biases and their presumptions. And uh, and it identifies aspects of normal interaction that might that have buried within them layers of condescension and and uh, bias and criticism and prejudice that would have been unspoken otherwise. And while it might be irritating for somebody to pipe up now and again, I would much rather have that dialogue and and risk offending someone who's being callous. I would much rather have that happen than, you know, carry on the way things have been with all of these, all this sort of institutional and casual racism and sexism and homophobia and all that we have all of that stuff just simmering unspoken i would i would rather have it pointed out now and again no that doesn't mean that you have to, it has to be kowtowed to at every point you know and you know what's funny is funny and the mind wanders where it wanders and sometimes it wanders into places that are not you know polite or uh, appropriate for all audiences but right, right. And I don't think any of that can be denied, but I also don't think that it's a bad idea every now and again to be reminded that it's, you know, it's not it's not evil to wish that people were more civil toward each other. There's nothing there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Ian, you actually incorporated political correctness or whatever, I suppose, in, in, in the lyric in, in the same. And I'm just curious how, how your relationship with that concept has evolved. I mean, well, I mean, I, I, it was and it is the same, which is, as I said, you know, I felt like there was, I mean, the reason I put that line in the song was because there was already a point in time where people were, like, you know, accusing. There was a point in, like, early punk for me, like, people sang what they saw or what they felt about, you know, what they thought. And then at some point people were, like, you know, were, there was this sea change in lyric writing and if you wrote something about like you know that you were concerned about something then people say well you're just being politically correct and you're critiqued for that um so i just put it out there like, yes i know yes i know this is politically correct um and i don't mind like from my point of view like i i just straight up was saying you know i'm i could give a fuck whether people think i'm politically correct or not um i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna soften my attack or my position on things so as not to make other people uncomfortable that I'm not interested in, in terms of my singing, um, I think, or my lyric writing <clears throat> in terms of, I think what's interesting about political correctness and what was stifling the conversation that Steve was talking about in my mind, really, it was a nonpartisan issue. It wasn't really left or right. It's just, it's like, it's people who are trying to um, derail progression in a way or evolution because they're worried that they're not on the train or something. I mean, a lot of times I'd be in these sort of quasi-collective sort of settings where people are talking about something and then one person or a couple of people were constantly like deriding people, other people for using certain terminology or not, or, you know, not handing the talking stick to someone or whatever it was. I just, you know, there's always <laughs> something, but really I felt like those people, they are just future real estate agents. Right. They did not. They were not. They're hung up on they're, protocol. They're tourists. 
They're like, because they're, all they're interested in doing is like, they didn't want the conversation to progress. They wanted to keep the conversation. They wanted to point out that people weren't talking in a way that they thought by whatever rule book they were using um, was not agreeable. Um, then there's other people in my life who point out, you know, I would use term terminology um, mindlessly by habit. And uh, people who gave a damn you know, about things would say, by the way, you know, you use this term in a way that maybe you're not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that kind of political correctness, if that's what it was. I think it was really important. I learned a fuck of a lot from other people giving a damn and saying stuff. It wasn't, they weren't trying to shut me down. They were trying to open me up. It's just a different kind of um, thing. And I think that political correctness, you know, I, I'd already seen, you know, really Reagan, the Reagan revolution was a very successful. It really, you know, greed was good, you know, or charity, or charity was selfish. Greed was good. You know, everything was inverted. And this is something that it, it was and still is really clear. Like I am, I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a democratic stronghold. Like, you know, the democratic party, which is, you know, I mean, they're not very left, but they're leftish. And, um, uh, not leftist, but leftish, and uh, you know, I wasn't. It wasn't until I was, I, th- I think I was 18 years old when I first met my first Republican. Like I just never, I just never, I just assumed they were like. I don't. I have no idea what to make of them. Mm. But when I met him, I was shocked. It was like as if it was like two different worlds. Where some of these people I talked to, I, I was stunned by people who were on the right because it feel like it's like a totally different. Like they're looking at things in a way that I just don't understand. I don't think that most, by the way, I don't think most right-wing Republican or right-wing people, I don't think that they are uh, incapable of caring or anything like that. But I think that the 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 way that they get played, like the base is really, it's interesting. The Republicans have no trouble going radical right. But the Democrats... Part, Democratic Party really struggles with going radical left. Yeah. You know, you have your occasional Nader or Sanders, but like I think they're terrified of. I mean, I think it, the Americans are so terrified of socialism that, but because it's the, probably the better idea. But that's you know whatever it's what it's worth. But um, so I think that uh, I think over the years, um, again, I just decide when people say. I mean, I've been told by really like righteous kind of leftist people that, you know, they will critique maybe some of my lyrics, some of the songs I've written, and they'll tell me that I don't have a right to sing those particular songs for whatever their reasons are. And my response, of course, is, fuck you. Like, I, you know, I'm fucking, I'm a punk, and I sing whatever I want to sing about. I'm going to write, I'm a human being, I get to write whatever I want to write about. So I was always really stunned by this, like, when I would run into those sort of things. And it's one of the reasons that like, I am, I'm an informal collectivist. Like if people want to work together and make something great, but I am not going to fucking join, a, you know, a situation, get involved with a situation where, you know, you, you can't, you can't get past the reading of the minutes because there's so much structure yeah. in place. It just doesn't fit for me. I think that that's, and that makes sense if you think about my trajectory anyway. Like, I you know, I never went to college. I never, like, I just started a record label. I didn't know how to make a record label. Like, we just made records. We didn't know there was a science to it. We thought record labels made records. You know, if you're a band, you make music. I remember the first interview I ever did when I was in the Teen Idols, the woman who was interviewing us said, are you in, did you join a band for the girls or the money? Right, right, And right. I was stunned because it never, ever occurred to me. It's that would be odd a how that. I, 
it, it, when you hear these like tropes about you know people join bands to be popular or to get girls or get money and and or make money and like I've known musicians. I've been around musicians my entire life. I, since I was a teenager, I've always been in the company of people in bands. And I, I, I mean, apart from a few people during the sort of feeding frenzy of the of the '90s, I can't think of anybody who would genuinely espouse that as as an opinion, like that they got into a band for one of those two reasons. Like those two reasons seem to be like the f- the furthest thing from your mind. You know, you get in right. you're in a band because being in a band is awesome. That's yeah, that because you're because you're a musician and you have to make music. That's that's I thought what we were doing. So I think that my life, I've always, I just do things. I just you know I'm just doing the thing you know, and I just didn't occur to me. So when I get into sort of formal collective settings, I have a very difficult time fitting into their structure because I just don't believe in that kind of. I don't believe in a formal structure. I believe in, I just believe in informal right. structures. Um, doesn't mean that, but doesn't mean I, I think that they can't do that. Certainly they can, and they've and you know those structures have been you know immensely successful in you know making a lot of things happen. You know, and for the left and the right, frankly, um, uh, political and in other forms. But for me, I just don't. I just can't. I just don't fit in there. I just I can't do it. Um, and I think that you know I think that. I think about what Steve was talking about in terms of, you know, calling people on their bullshit. And I think that because of my like sort of like I'm I'm you know I'm I've a, I'm a musician, but I'm a well-known sort of like I you know I'm, I have a kind of like spokespersony kind of role, um, and I feel like that it is it's really tricky for me. Like I feel like when I read like when Steve and I read your stuff, I always think like. You have like you're you're knowledgeable and you speak with an authority, you know. Whereas I am often like my I'm speaking with like a just like a what I think, you know. I haven't really done the math on this shit. Whereas I feel like you really know, like you've thought about stuff in a way. Uh, well, I try to give um, that impression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's you certainly do give me that impression that you're like you know you've thought about it like the nuts and bolts of things. Whereas I'm much more like I'm just talking about like a, I have a different sort of like I'm thinking about like the the basic for me my principle on it like how i how i how the way i would navigate a situation that's all um but i also think that i have been the subject of such ugly like ad hoc attacks you know you know i mean i've had people write songs that are you know about me where my name is in the song that just basically you know says Fuck yeah you. i can and, check you know, all of those boxes as well yeah <laughs> right and it's just yeah it just makes you you know you start to feel like I just feel like that is just, I just don't, for me, I just don't see any use in responding to that kind of nonsense. Not that you did, but I'm just saying, so I always just, I just stay the fuck away from all that mess. I just don't want The way I've always sort of thought of that is that, like, I can think of people in my life, or people that I have opinions about that I've never met and never interacted with, just people from, for like, for no real reason, like, you know... I, I kind of think Sylvester Stallone is a jerk. Like, I'm, I mean, I, I have no reason to think that. I don't know that. I, don't, I know nothing about him. I've used this example before. And, uh, like, just mm-hmm. off the top of my head, somebody said, like, what do you think of Sylvester Stallone? He's probably a dick, you know? I don't know why I think that. Mm-hmm. But but it, in some small way, in some tiny slice of the music scene, I'm somebody's Sylvester Stallone. Like, for whatever reason, they think I'm a dick. Right. And I'm... 
and I, I don't want to deny anybody whatever mild, whatever slight pleasure that is. I mean, when I think, you know, if I think about Sylvester Stallone being a dick, it gives me a you know modicum of satisfaction <laughs> to think that in in one tiny aspect of life, you know, maybe I maybe I'm a better person than Sylvester Stallone in some way. You know, sure he's more famous, has more money, can afford surgery, all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm not a dick, and maybe he's a dick. So like, I feel like I don't want to rob anybody of that. So like, I tend to let people have like. Opinions about me are for other people. I don't really, I'm, you know, I don't really want to get into that game. It's not, it's none of my business what other people think about me. I would agree with you, but the difference is, but let me speak to that because I have a. It'd be one thing if I was, you know, like you know, like I feel like you know, I don't know, the the, the prime minister of of you know whatever some European country is a shithead. That's two different you know worlds. Like nobody who's interviewing him is going to ask him what he thinks about. What do, you, what do you think about the fact that some kid from Washington, D.C. or a guy from Fugazi doesn't like him? I think that what I run into problems, and this is what I don't like about people who spend their time to idly fucking taking shots at me, is that I have to spend my time dealing with other people asking me about it or saying, what do you think about so-and-so? And I don't think, you know, it's, it's, it's a waste of my fucking time, honestly, mm-hmm, to be, mm-hmm, have some, mm-hmm. some fucking tourist just talking shit about me on their way up to where they think they're going to go. Um, and then people saying like, well, what's your response? I have no response for them. I'm just not going to engage. And I think that, that it's ironic, but especially now with the, in the internet world, you know, that you know, there was recently, you know, there's, there's been a few like internet frenzies, you know, that involved me. Um, most of which, you know, now occur in the social media world, but certainly before were just like, you know, they're just whatever, like, you know, website-y, whatever kind of things. But, um, and, you know, shit will just spread so fast. And then people, like, I would get, like, dozens of emails would be like, how do you respond to this? And I have no, I'm just not going to get involved in it. I'm just not, and, and that's, for me, the irritation is like, they're what this person's idly doing, wherever they wherever they are. They, this person is idly taking a shot at me, or they're just trying to like get their like bones. Like, I mean, they're taking advantage of my work to get more attention to themselves, and then I'm supposed to actually do promotional work for them. And I think, well, fuck that. I am not <laughs> going to be involved. And and in the case of like, there's one situation where I remember I got a calls from like four or five people, and they're like, oh my god, you're you're being destroyed online. Like you're just, you're, you're getting destroyed. Are you okay? I'm like, I said, I'm fine. Cause I'm not looking at the computer right now, you know? <laughs> and then I, I looked and then I started getting emails from all these like fucking ghosts. Do you remember the what the issue was? Do you remember? Like- oh yeah. It was the urban outfitters, minor threat. T-shirt, oh, right. Right. Urban right. Outfitters issue. And, mm-hmm. These people from the past were writing me and going, like, I'm so disappointed in you. You know, I always <laughs> thought you were sort of a sellout. And I was just like, I'm just not going to respond. I'm not, you know, but this went on all day. All day it went on. Like, people writing me and either to attack me or they had read about it or to say they were so dis- disappointed in me or they're concerned about me. And I think, what the fuck do people, that they must be sitting at desks and have nothing to do in their lives. And right. so I started thinking about this and I realized someone, I remember like a week later, there were some German people showed up at Discord to visit. I didn't know them. There's some fan people that came by. And this guy said to me in a very thick German accent, he said, um, so, you know, I, how do you explain to you the, uh, urban outfitters, you know, whatever his German accent, but he was, I couldn't, I finally realized he's talking about this urban outfitters thing, right? 
And I said, I just, I, I said to him, I was like, listen, I go, that was, that was a street, that was like a gang fight in an aquarium. I said, the fish were fighting the fuck out of each other. And they knocked over the castle and they knocked over the plants and the gravel has been displaced. But for people who are not in the aquarium, not a drop of water got them on them. Hmm. It's just, this is like a, something is happening now. Like I appreciate, I appreciate the exchanges. I, I, I like the idea that people can communicate with each other, but the the um, the intensity of the kind of attacks and the momentary quality of them, I think, is deeply unhealthy. Like it's like what's going on now, like with this kind of. Cause I think it's really bread and circus. You mean the, like sort of inter- up- the sort of internet pylon scenario? Yeah, and yeah. I think that people just jump on because they don't know what else to do with their lives because really people are out of, feel no sense of control. They have no sense of they just don't have any sense that they actually have a place. In this world, they, the people live on on a they 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 jump on shit so hardcore. Everyone weighs in on something. I mean, funny. I remember when Rollins got into so much trouble because he wrote um, this. He wrote a column about Robin Williams, and he right. he said something like, you know, somebody like a parent, somebody who has a children, like he thinks it's, it's cowardly to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. People went berserk on him. Like they just went totally berserk and saying, you know, he didn't understand depression. And I mean, frankly, I think Henry understands depression. And, um, you know, Henry, you know, I think his point was salient. And I think most of the people who critiqued him didn't actually read the column. What they read was the other people, somebody, the critic, whoever was angry at Henry said, like, he says that people who commit suicide are cowards, which is not what he said. Right. But that's what. So that's the kind of shit. And I think that all in, of this. In is, his defense, this might be this. This might be cataloged as like the first time I've come to the defense of Henry Rollins. But the, in his defense, w- when he saw all of those criticisms, yeah. like the 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 fundamental criticism was that y- you know you shouldn't judge someone who's been driven to something by depression. You shouldn't judge that person based on that the disease and what the disease drove them to right and when he read those criticisms he took them to heart and yeah. he no. and he wrote a response that i thought was actually a a pretty like it was big of him to to own up to how insensitive he had been and the way that he you know whether he had a a specific point or not uh the way like using robin williams as an example using a recent tragedy as a as a, a way to underscore it all that sort of stuff it made it come off really bad, and he owned up to it. I thought that was pretty big of him. Mm-hmm. 
I totally agree. And I mean, and you know, and, you know, Henry and I are we're best friends for. We've been, you know, best friends since I was eleven. So like, I've, you know, and I was really, you know, aware of what was, you know, I had heard, you know, I knew what was going on. And but I think mostly what I came away from from that ex- that whole that experience and also the other thing that is it that there people are so caught up in the pile on. Um, and I start to think about this idea that is, you know, you know, it's like between that and like th- like insane focus on on food in our culture like just you know every week any weekly that still exists only writes about you know ale new ale houses and and places to get like artisanal beef stew or whatever the fuck (laughs) um i feel like that these i feel like this is like the pure bread and circus like people give the people give the masses something to occupy their Mm -hmm. minds while we fucking dissemble the world and I think that, and I think it's really interesting because it's like so removed from like the era where I felt like people were really were thinking the so-called politically correct people were really like thinking about the world and thinking about how they live in a way like how they live and what changes they could make in their lives that would not like continue this sort of like the, the decline or whatever. Well, I, I'm not a, I, I have to say, I think that like all of these are manifestations of things that are there that have been there all along and nothing is different about the current internet thing other than the speed with which information travels right. and the distances that it can go instantly. The, the internet pylon is precisely the same as the angry letter to the editor, which took you know, a week to get into the newspaper. It's but it's it's exactly precisely the same. But it also you know? takes but it also takes paper uh, pen to paper, paper to fold, fold to the envelope to the address to walk down the street with a stamp. Exactly. And like put the it in the, the ease, internet has done right. nothing but increase the speed right. and ease of things. It hasn't changed culture. It hasn't changed the way people respond to each other, what their interests are. And I mean the the or maybe it's just magnified the worst elements of it. Then well, I mean it, it's just access. I think it's access. You have access to yeah. I mean the, the internet provides access to things, and what one of the, one of the things that it provides access to is it provides other people access to to me with their stupid fucking ill considered opinions. You know, and that that's right. That's what it, the internet does. I don't think it's changed. I don't think anything about it is different from the way it was. I mean, we're having conversations about um, propriety and language, and those exact same conversations are, you know, put Lenny Bruce in jail. Right. So like, that's true. That there's there's literally no difference in my mind between, you know, the way the culture behaves toward uh, discourse now and the way it behaved toward discourse a hundred years ago. The the biggest difference is that we can all see more of it now, right? And we can all see more of that of the of the meta commentary as well. Not, I, I I'm I'm not concerned about a a, a cultural shift. And I, 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 and I would, and actually I I appreciate that, and I actually I would agree with you. I think that it is. I still feel like that there's a. I think. I don't think there's a cultural shift. Like the thing that the internet has changed society. What I think is that it's magnified an aspect of society that people now think at least let's put it this way people that i my peer group the people that i'm in touch with i'm just i'm you know i find i quite often am surprised how removed they feel from everything but partially because they've removed themselves they don't need to be involved there's no actual like there's no real conversation that's all. Like, well, you know, it's, I, it's, it's, I, again, I would disagree. I think a lot of those conversations have been displaced toward 
text messages and emails and and things like that instead of instead of engaging with the people immediately around you you can engage with people anywhere in the world and you know the argument is well people are buried, have their nose a bit noses buried in their phones they're not interacting with other people well what they're interacting with through their phone is other people and I, and i i don't see this i don't see this great like shift that I, I hear bemoaned by a lot of other people, a lot of people who predate the internet era. And I'm not per- deeply vested in the internet myself. Well, I'll point out that I can put, but I'll point out that Vish didn't ask us all just to text in our answers. And this conversation would be a lot different if we were just typing it in. You know, I think that there's a difference between actually having, you know, sonic interaction, talking with each other, whether it's on the phone or in person. And I, don't get me wrong. I fucking... I write email all day long. I'm not again. I'm not. I'm not a luddite. I don't disagree with. I don't think the internet should be shut down. It's nothing like that. I actually think there's just a different. I think people have a different idea about discourse. And I, you know, I think that there's no question. It's, it's convenient to like. You know, I did a, a Skype interview with, or a Skype conversation with somebody in fucking Norway the other day, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. <laughs> like, it's amazing. It's right. a, it's like a miracle. This could even happen. I appreciate and I appreciate that. Um, and I frankly, I appreciate phones like the fact that i'm in washington and you're in chicago and you're in guelph are you in guelph still yes i'm in guelph yeah right so the fact that three of us can sit here and and chew the fucking fat is it's incredible and i'm very thankful for it and i'm thankful for the internet and the gifts that it has brought along i i don't however i also think that the safety of one-way communication um has really has brought about a certain tonality that i think is is uh, less less than positive in terms of the overall conversation that's just my my sense you know that people you know like when somebody gets into a fight you know when they're getting into an argument with somebody or they're, they're breaking up with like a couple's breaking up and then they just write the worst stupidest shit because they don't have to think about they didn't first of all, they didn't think about it to begin with because they could just pop it off right away and second off they don't have someone sitting right there to say like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" You know, right. and maybe it's fine. Maybe it's more elongated. Maybe it'll all get worked out. I don't think it's into the world. I just think it's it's just a, a it's it's problematic in terms of actually, um, it's problematic in, in terms of it actually doing some kind of constructive like. I guess I come from my world is like being connected to people in a way that is more physical or friendship like you know like my affection for you steve is is to is really you know like it's kind of a permanent affection like if i and if you and i could find ourselves um in the same room um at any time i would be so happy you know and doesn't mean but i don't have to fucking like we don't email each other that often or we don't write to for me it's like it's like it's the actual quality of sitting down with people that is really what i that's always been what i've been about and um and so i think that that there's, you know, I do interact with people online on like emailing and stuff like that. And so there's that, that those relationships do exist. But ultimately, I think that if people retreat entirely into that kind of world or largely into that world, then then I feel like there's then there's a certain kind of activism or kind of connectivity that makes it much more difficult for like sort of larger things to occur. Like, I don't know if we may never see a uh, something is um you know, I mean, the early American punk scene was significant. It was a significant gathering of people that really felt interconnected. Hence, this fucking phone call. Right, right. right. I, I, so I, I think that's the kind that gets more. I mean, I don't know exactly how, the, but that also has to do with the the vastness of the internet and like the incredible amount of options 
you know, that you people could do anything at any time and anywhere, you know, that kind of thing. So there's it's a different issue, but I'm not I don't mean to bemoan it. No, I just I just, I just feel it. like yeah. there is a, it's it's easy to mistake a change in form for a change in substance. And I just feel like at the moment it used to be like people would say angry things under their breath and now they put them on Twitter or Facebook and it, and so it and it used to be that that people would, you know, share things with a, a small personal group of people and now they just share them publicly and the, and I feel like the form of discourse is changing somewhat but the the impulses are the same and the and the you know I mean it's easy to point to specific examples of activism that couldn't have happened without the interconnectedness of the internet you know like no question and don't don't, don't deny that and no so I feel like the you know, I, I don't I don't necessarily feel like there's any anything special, like temporarily special about now. I feel like we're basically the same as we've always been. What about the anonymity? Yeah, I don't know about. Well, the, I, don't know. I mean, there's always been aspects of anonymity. I mean, the Klansmen wore hoods. You know, that, I mean, I don't I don't think well, there's anything say, unique speak about very well for commenters, does it? You know, I mean, that's the, I think that's the point. Like, you know, you have to at least like I know in the discord website to comment, you have to log in. And people yeah, have really, right. really raged at us. But we also haven't had a lot of people talking about white power. You know, it's like we just don't right. get that kind of nonsense going on. And also, and just going back to what you said about saying stuff under your breath, the reason it's under your breath is because it's just better fucking left there, frankly, for the most part. Because usually those people who say that shit later on, they're like, oh, it was not that big of a deal. But if once they, but if they have to immediately espouse like their worst feeling about something, then it becomes a dialogue, and then the dialogue, then like so, then the, people just end up arguing about some fucking stupid thing that should not have been bothered to say in the first place, which is I think is a waste but of the, time. The, well, yeah, but I, I mean, one of the uh, the other great thing about the internet is because it's so vast. Yeah. You can waste some of it, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the productivity of the rest of it. And it, you only it, only by you you have to actively choose to waste your time on it. And you've done the intelligent thing, and by carving off a portion of it and saying, "Well, I'm just not interested in that," and that that prevents you from wasting your time. But right. for the people who are involved in it, like it animates them in some way. No question. And and in the same way that I can I I can think Sly Stallone is probably a dick, uh, then I think, and it, you know, that amuses me uh, for some brief portion of the day, then I, I don't have any problem with that stuff going on in some slice of the internet that I'm not paying attention to. You're really fixated on Sylvester Stallone. I don't know why. That's yeah. strange. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really understand that. I also, before, 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 let me just point out one thing while we're at, just, I mean, the fact that we, like, spent a half an hour talking about Al Jurgensen, and then another half an hour or forty minutes talking about the fucking internet. <laughs> That's that says that says what it says. You know, I feel like that the like you know. I remember when. Are you saying that we've blown it? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I remember in the early '90s, like when bands, when the everyone started. Can we signing. talk about the cramps instead? But yeah, but, what I want to say is, what I want to say is, like, I remember when major labels sort of started swooping in that era, and I realized yeah, I was that like, was something has really changed, and it's not just the fact that bands are signing, but I realized. It changed the discourse. Like when we talked about, like you and I were talking about the Butthole Surfers earlier. And I remember when I first saw them. I saw I saw them in the Whiskey in Los Angeles in 1982. They still had a trap. They had a regular drum guy playing a trap kit. They had a bass player. It was like a different. It was like it was just King and and um, Gibby, um, or not King, um, Paul and Gibby, and then a bass player and a drummer. It was, and they were so weird and I remember just telling people about them and just talking about the ideas and like these songs and I realized that 
so much of the time, like the discourse, what people talked about was always about like, like these ideas, these people, like these presentations, the performances, songs, the sounds, and describing all this stuff. And that was really what people talked about. And then I remember in the early '90s, suddenly the conversation shifted when almost every conversation was about people were talking about deals, the fucking deal, and the contracts, the money, and like and whatever. And they right. got. And I remember that there was such a shift. In a way, I feel like that is like. Every time I do a Q&A, somebody says, what do you think of Spotify or whatever the fuck? And I think right, so right, right. interesting. People still want to talk about the deals. They still want to talk about the deal, right. Well, we're we're metric obsessed, right? We've never been – it's never been – used to know when, when I was growing up, you would maybe know how well a film did on its opening weekend or record sales. But now it's like real time. Like, oh, like you can watch how many views this gets on YouTube, how many spins it gets on Spotify Speak for yourself. Like, I don't give a fuck about that stuff. Yeah. When you say we're obsessed, yeah. I don't give I, a I, fuck I, at all about that stuff. I don't. The, care. the other day, uh, the other day, I uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be supremely meta here and say the other day I I tweeted something to my like group of nine friends that I have that follow me on Twitter or whatever <laughs> um, that the use of likes as a metric is the PR equivalent of using. I can't even as an argument. <laughs> like they're they're fr- they're both like so perfectly of this time and so perfectly free of any real meaning. Yeah, you know. And can I let me point out something? Just why? Just so I can lick Steve's ass for a second here, um, <laughs> because you know, anybody can pick I up shower. anybody I can pick up a guitar and strum it. You know, and then there's other people who like. You know, they may not make any sound that sounds right or good or whatever to, to to other people, maybe. And then there's people who can, like, they can play a song. You know, they can play a song. And maybe they're even good. They're talented guitar players. You know, and then there's people who are, like, they're musicians. And they're, 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 they're thinking their relationship with the music and they're, with their instruments is, like, it's transcendent. Like, they, they, like, that's where they're at. Like, that's, like, you, and you can tell that when you see that. And I think in the same way, like, like I think of you, like I think of Steve is very much like you is like somebody who is, like you have a really like y- your perception that like your way of organizing your words and the way you think about things is really entertaining and refreshing and thoughtful and so like for you like when you get into when you have a public saxophone like the Twitter thing right you are well suited for it. Like, you know, you'd be, if I could give a fuck about Twitter, I would follow you. I'd be the 10th motherfucker that follows you. And because <laughs> yeah, you're I actually keep it private so that I can talk shit about people without ending up on pitchfork. Right. Cause you're <laughs> so it's a, right. Which, which, and so I think that like, in a way, like, I don't think, like, I think there's a place for that stuff. Like I think, and I, and I, you know, I think the difference is that sometimes people like when they, they write songs, it's because it's coming out of them. And it's pure. And sometimes they write songs, they want people to look at them. And it's about them, not about the song. And I think in the same way, in, in, in being declarative and, and, and being a, cr- a critical thinker like you are, or being a, and, and speaking out about things, like, I feel like your ideas, it's not about how great you are. It's always about, like, the idea. Like, this is a really, this is a bon mot. Like, you're fucking putting it out there to the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like it's too delicious to not share it, like a Dorothy Parker kind of thing. And I I agree with that. I think it's you know I appreciate I even I appreciate it. Um, that's why I said like when I got that that thing you wrote 
um, to Rabot. I was like, wow, that's like I just like I like the you know you you organize your words and thoughts in a way that I'm like I really appreciate it. even when I don't necessarily agree, although I usually do. But I still think like, God damn, he's a good thinker. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you have a, a, um, a medium in which you can share your thoughts. Cause I think it's good for the world. You know that I just I you know in the same. So I feel like that is, you know, it's not again. I don't. I think the problem is that there's, you know, this whole other segment of society who just think it's important to know what like what we need to know what the fuck what they think about kimchi i don't care what the fuck they think about kimchi <laughs> it's irrelevant you know and i don't want to and i don't care if people like or dislike so steve uh ian has said some very nice things about you to wrap this up do you have something particularly nice you can say about ian <laughs> yeah this is my i was it was a fishing expedition um <laughs> yeah you know it's during the during the punk and especially during the hardcore era there were a lot of blowhards like a lot of people who like took to their tiny little pulpit to tell the world what they thought right and i always thought the thing that distinguished ian was not that he told other people what to do or how to think or how to believe but he demonstrated day in and day out that you could be an honorable person, treat other people decently, and build a system that wasn't just a dollhouse version of the mainstream culture, but was like a completely separate and viable alternative existence. And, I mean, it was maybe the best example of it. Um, what always bothered me about the the way that punk started to assimilate into the mainstream's culture is that you had you had people who were like had some history in the music scene or had some history in in punk or whatever and then you know they'd become a realtor they'd become a lawyer or whatever and they'd be like you know i, I i'm the punk rock realtor you know <laughs> right or i'm uh, i'm the i'm the punk rock lawyer you know and the or or there would be like bands would have managers or there or there'd be like a a publicist or something like that and these 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 would be people that came from this indigenous punk scene and had sort of created offices for themselves you know like booking agencies or you know representatives of one kind or another just like as though the point of the underground culture and punk was to mimic the the big boy music business somehow, right. and that and the worst aspects of it that always irritated me. Like when you know, like a photographer would take pictures of a band and then like insist on credit and copyright and so much per use and all this kind of stuff, like. You know, sort of this creeping professionalism started to get started to, to take hold in the punk scene, and I, I always admired and respected the way Ian and Discord, as an embodiment of Ian's sort of ethos, kept things at a very, very human scale. Mm -hmm. Like you could call and speak to mm -hmm. him, call that record company and speak mm -hmm. to him on the telephone. Basically, anybody. You could write a letter and get a response. Um, if you wanted one of their records, you could get one of their records from them, from anywhere in the world. You know, it it wasn't about 
creating a, a, their own competitive version of the music scene. It was of the music industry. It was a way of demonstrating that the music industry was wrong and unnecessary. And I kind of feel like uh, every now and again you see that you see that thing sort of reassert itself, where like uh, people from the underground gravitate toward the mainstream and and presume that their history is all that all that's necessary right. you know and then uh it it always it always bothered me when people would sort of you know filthy the the scene that i thought was so important by associating it with all of these crass like music business and and capitalist impulses and that I guess that's the most inspirational thing about Ian for me is just demonstrating that you know you can carry on doing things on a human scale basically forever, you know. I'll say. Yeah, I think you've both spoken about aspects of each other that I certainly can relate to about both of you. So I, it's, and I think that says something too. But to me, that I appreciate what you've said. Um, this is maybe a weird question, but do you foresee, because we've sort of talked about how your your work has intersected over the years, I don't imagine you've had too many conversations like this uh, recently, but do you foresee a time where you might share a stage or work on a project together again? Yeah, I don't know. I think we both, I think both of us have really successful, like we both have been, we both are hard workers, and part of that work is really, I think we very much have our own orbits, like we just work. Like, I know, I mean, I know Steve, I mean, I'm quite sure, I know what I do, and I'm quite sure Steve, like, we, we've we created something that we have to tend to. We have a custodial responsibility right, right. to these things. Um, and, That's and, and one way to put it, like, it. yeah. <laughs> right, I mean, part of it's a, li- it's a livelihood, yeah. but it's also something, it's like, you know, you're you're fucking, we made something we want to look after. We're not, yeah. you know, we don't want, because, you know, what... What you you know, what you do informs what you've done and what you've you know, and that's I feel like that's really for me it's important, especially with the, with a record label. I feel really since I I know that my life is very unusual compared to most people, at least mm-hmm. around here for sure. Um, and that is, you know, not only you know, obviously I've been in bands that were fairly successful and in, in the, on their own terms, but also, you know, there's been you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have entrusted me with their music and that by doing so has allowed me to live a life that's very unusual compared I you know I basically can decide my own what I want to do with it each day it's like it's up to me and um and I feel that for for a long time for many years that was um you know we were just selling so many records it was just easy just to do that now as, as you know the label is gets long in the tooth you know and it is because the label is you know, really a reflection of a living, a living thing. Um, it is in itself kind of a living thing and it will die because of that. And so, and it's, you know, I'm not, this is not to say the label is going to disappear in the next year or two, but it's certainly, you know, we're a smaller, much smaller than we've ever been. And, or at least since the very beginning. And, um, you know, now would be the time to be like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to deal with this anymore. But now I actually feel like, okay, now like this is where, you know, you really got to show like, this is where, you know, you got to show that you're, you meant it. Like I fucking, these people entrusted me with their music. And I feel like as long as there are people in the world who are interested in getting copies of these records or hearing this music, I feel like I have a responsibility to try to, 
keep it going for long, as long as possible. You know, like not and not in a gross way, but in a really a, a thoughtful way that make not ever stepping out of line with our general principles, but also um, not speculating on stupid things and wasting money on you know that's always been the way we survived so long. The label in De- in December will be it'll be thirty five years we've had this label, and wow, um, yeah, and you know it's like and you know we put our first record out in December of nineteen eighty. Um, we don't. I don't believe in anniversaries. I don't celebrate them, and I don't. I never had like a twentieth or twenty-five. I don't give a fuck about that kind of stuff. The only thing we ever did like that on any level was we put out the twenty years of Discord box set, um, right. which was really was really in my mind was an attempt to had two folds. One was to show that the label was not Minor Threat and Fugazi and Ian Mackay, but it was actually this vast number of people that were involved and the other thing was that in the early days of um, the label and you know that uh, you know we were constantly being people would say oh well you can do this for now like you're but it's too idealistic you're not going to last and they kept I mean, we often ridiculed for the way we went about doing things like I've never you know, I don't have a lawyer I've never never used contracts mm-hmm. you know and you know we just like we didn't copyright shit we, all that kind of stuff we just did that we just did things and I think that people you know, we were often told like, well, that's just not, it's not sustainable. So when we hit the 20 year mark, I kind of wanted to point out like, are we real yet? After right, 20 right, years, right. Is, is it, that was sort of a, but, but in terms of it being celebrating an anniversary, I just, that's not interesting to me because I just, right. just want to work. So I feel like that now, you know, I have a responsibility to, to, you know, the members of Youth Brigade or to the members of <laughs> Deadline or, or Q and Not You, all these people who said... Soccer team, don't forget soccer yeah, team. Yeah, soccer team. Like, all these people who basically, like, you know, really, like, you know, some years, some some people three decades ago, basically, ever since, have allowed me to, like, put their music out and handle it. That's insane. You know, they've never, and we've never yeah. had any problem. Nobody, we've never been sued. We don't have any beef with anybody. I feel like this is like, I feel like now like the custodial responsibility is for real. And I think that, you know, like Steve and I, like, you know, like when they come to town, like shall I come to town, which is, you know, one of my favorite bands. So when they come, I'm always going to be, like, they play Baltimore. I go to Baltimore to see them, you know, because I love them as people and I love their band. And, and it's just so refreshing to see a band like that um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they're still they bring they are they are there for a reason and the reason is not just to play a show and um, and uh, I think that there's you know I feel like I'm always I think we will, I'm surely we'll see each other I mean I have no idea in what capacity we would ever work together but um, I don't fucking know I would be, be <laughs> nice you know if we lived in the same town but that's the way that's the way that's the curse of the jet age you know if we didn't fly around we wouldn't know each other yeah, my. I mean, for me, the day-to-day obligations are uh, a little more mundane. Like, I don't get to decide what I do every day. I'm I'm scheduled to do things months in advance, and but you get to decide to do that. Well, I, mean, I can decide that now right? that I'm like what I want to do in July, basically. Right. Um. But but and on my end, it's it's not a custodial responsibility. It's a it's a uh, an active responsibility in that I have to earn thirty grand a month, or this place goes under. And all right. all the people that work here, who people who I admire and would trust with my life, like all those people, can't make rent if I if we go under. So I have a I I have. That as an obligation as a business owner to keep you know to keep our head above water 
for the the good of all the people that work here. And then also I feel a, a responsibility to the music scene in Chicago. Like I feel like I have gotten so much from the music scene here. I've been, you know, treated so well by the music scene here and I've been, had experiences that, you know, were utterly unique and, you know, really important to my life because of the music scene here. And I feel the least I can do is make this place available as a resource. And it's been gratifying that we've lasted as long as we have. And in the same way that Ian describes, the way that we go about it is different from the way that, you know, industry professionals go about it. And uh, it's gratifying that we're still here 20 years later and all the industry professionals are all out looking for work. You know, it is gratifying to be right about your... Um, your core beliefs and to demonstrate day in, day out that you can carry on doing things in a way that you're comfortable with and in a way that you think is responsible without it being risky, without it being as as risky as doing something more conservative or more more conventional. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that that makes me feel good about the way things are going. But my obligations are a little bit more mundane. Like I, I don't I don't get to have the experience of being responsible for the stewardship of uh, an immense catalog. What I do get to do is I get to the satisfaction on a sort of a daily basis. I get to see people realizing their life's ambition. You know, day in and day out, bands come in here that have been dreaming about that moment for months that they're going to come into the studio and make a record. And then, then perhaps that they can share their creative impulse with the whole world, you know. And that's really gratifying to be in the, in a position to see people realize that ambition again and again is I've described it as being like watching kids open their Christmas presents and it is exactly precisely like that. You're like somebody gets something that they've always wanted and I get to help them get it, you know. So that's it's tremendously gratifying as a job, but it is a grind when you realize that you have this thing hanging over you that you you must do. Like I literally must earn a thousand dollars every day, come hell yeah. or high water. Right. I ha- and if I don't, then they come and take all this stuff away from me, and I lose my house, and all my friends are out of work. You know, and so that mm-hmm. there's a, a heaviness to it that is mm-hmm. offset by the sensation of accomplishment that I get to see and that I get to experience on a regular basis. I think that for, and, and though you know, our circumstances may be, you know, differing in, in, in certain aspects of it, I think that ultimately, you know, I think that we, I like to think, at least I feel like this way, that basically, you know, when we, wait, we you know, when we, we wake up with something to do that we want to do, and maybe you don't, maybe you don't, you know, maybe there's days where you're like, same with me, like, oh, I don't want to deal with this fucking work I have to do. But ultimately, we, it's like, we're not working for somebody else. Right. You know, and we're, and, and that, I think, like, I guess I feel like, you know, you, like, your dream was to, to, to open to, you know, to build and operate, like, a world-class studio. And... You're fucking doing it, so I don't. So yeah. I feel like you when you wake up. So you might, you know, the, you know, the same way when I have to deal with like, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, I, I do actually run a business here, and I have also have employees, and I am, you know, obviously looking after, you know, I have to look after all these things, 
those people as well. And I have to deal with a lot of shit that I just don't like dealing with. Like, you know, obviously there's, you know, the thing ultimately as a boss, like I always feel like my job is to assist the people who work at Discord. Um, and I'm and I'm the person like the boss from in my mind is the person who does the thing that nobody else wants to do. Right. Like deal with like tax crap, whatever. And and so then I think that's 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 my job. And but I also know that I get to do what I want to do. And that is that's rare for, you know, in, in, in our world where I think most people I mean, really what, what in our society, I, I feel like what has happened is that, you know, business has 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 taken ownership of people's time. So people don't feel like they own their own time. And that is criminal mm-hmm. that people don't they feel like that they they're, they're they from eight to six or whatever, you know, and, and now, you know, beyond that, given the devices that they just don't own their own time. Right. Um, and I feel really strongly that, you know, I believe in the idea of pe- that people own their own time. And even my staff, like they it's like their time. And I feel like that's really, really important. So I feel that like this idea of we all have ob- we have obligation to course, but ultimately, like. But we do, we do what we want to do, and that's that's that is an incredible gift and a gift. I don't mean, and I never say, you know, I'm not fucking lucky because I work too hard to be mm-hmm. lucky. But it's a gift, <laughs> you know, it's a gift. Yeah, I and in, in in the same way that you feel like a sense of identity with you, the place where you are and the people that are from where you are. Like, I, you know, I feel, uh, I feel, I. That if it, if not for Chicago, I wouldn't have been able to do all the things that I've done. Like if I had picked a different city to land in, I would have been in a different crowd of people. And the, the particular crowd that I was in here were supremely inspirational. And no question. And and you know if there are just so many of those little serendipitous things that I can't help but feel like uh, you know I I'm. In, I've, I'm grateful to circumstance that I ended up where I did and in the cr- company that I ended up with instead of a different crowd. Like so many little things could have changed in my life. Like, you know, if I had failed to meet this one person, then I would have failed to make that one connection and then I would not have been doing what I'm doing with my life. And, uh, right. you know, the the least I can do is not blow it from here you know i feel like it was such a fragile scenario and so such a a a pure chance thing that i ended up having the opportunities that i did that if i blow it now i feel like i will have wasted all of that so i i'm Mm -hmm. i'm trying to keep it going not just because it's satisfying but because I, i feel like it's you know it's a it's doing justice to what enabled me to get here in the first place. And and by the mm. same token, uh, I think both of you are aware of how much your work has meant to me and, and, and the way you conduct yourselves. And, and Well, if you keep saying it, I we know, will be. I yeah. know, yeah. yeah. But I do appreciate your, your being on this show and all the time you've uh, given me over the years, and I hope this was fun. And I hope it recorded. <laughs> <laughs> The song you're hearing right now is The People's Microphone from the wonderful 2014 album Dude Incredible by Shellac of North America. I hope you enjoyed the second half of this conversation between Ian Mackay and Steve Albini. Again, you can learn more about Ian's work 
at discord.com. And you can make a record with Steve or another eminently qualified human being at his amazing recording studio, Electrical Audio, which is located in Chicago, Illinois. You can learn more about that at electricalaudio.com. Coming up on the show in the next little while, King Crimson's Tony Levin and I discuss punk rock, prog rock, and playing bass on John Lennon's final album. The amazing comedy duo Sharpling and Worcester talk about their incredible 2015 and their first ever live performances. Gregory Pepper will be sending me his own edit of our conversation about his new Gregory Pepper and his Problems record, Chorus, Chorus, Chorus. Willie Thrasher discusses the Native North America compilation, the re-release of his 1981 album Spirit Child, and the renewed appreciation for Aboriginal musicians in Canada and beyond. And hopefully there's much more exciting stuff coming up on the show that I will tell you about soon. If you want to keep track of the show, stay connected to the show, Creative Control of Vishkana is on iTunes. It's also on audioboom.com. There is a Patreon page for the show where you can make a flexible monthly donation and view some t-shirts that we have for sale. Again, just look up Creative Control with Vishkana at at, uh, patreon.com. The show is on Facebook. There's a Creative Control of Vishkana Facebook page. It's on Twitter, at Vish Creative. I am at Vishkana. And uh, there's a version of this show that airs every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. And you can listen to it wherever you are in the world at CFRU.ca. All right, thanks again for checking out the show, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye for now. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.